Hello, you are now in Carl's Orbit, where interesting people from all walks of life are interviewed as to who they are, what they do, and how they do it. Our podcast title is The Search for Extraterrestrials, locating technological civilizations, possible ones, beyond the Earth. And our guest is Dr. Seth Shostak, author and senior astronomer at the SETI Institute, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute. Welcome to Carl's Orbit, Dr. Shostak. Hi, Carl. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here. Yes, and uh, uh, let me ask you, uh, what is SETI all about, and uh, what do you do there? Yeah, well, well, the first question is quite easy to answer. SETI, or at least the SETI Institute, it's just a nonprofit organization here in the Silicon Valley of California. And uh, what we do is all sorts of research that's relevant to the question of life in space. Now, you know, the Institute was uh, formed about, uh, well, it was 1984, so some time ago. And in the beginning, the only project here was the actual SETI project, looking for intelligent life in space. But since then, we've developed a whole raster of uh, scientists who are looking for life that might not be so intelligent, but would still be <laughs> biology from another world. Oh, so really, you extend beyond the area of looking for uh, technologically advanced uh, civilizations, huh? We have. In fact, if you go to the Institute, you know, on a day when we're not all working from home, as we are now during the pandemic, you would find that the, the, the overwhelming majority of the research being done there is what's called astrobiology. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, is there life on Mars? Was there life on Mars? What about the moons of Jupiter, the moons of Saturn? Looking for life on other worlds that might be so small you need a microscope to see it. Oh, okay. So, so uh, in the past, we sort of excluded any kind of living thing that uh, wasn't up at the level of intelligence. And uh, now we're finding out that there are organisms that live on Earth under conditions that we wouldn't ordinarily think they could exist. And they, I guess they're called extremophiles. And uh, these might exist in places in our own solar system right now, I would imagine. Well, it's true. It's true. I mean, most people don't see a whole lot of extremophiles in their daily lives, uh, <laughs> unless they're in a zoo and, and they're working the penguin pen. You know, those yeah, are kind of extremophiles themselves. They they live in conditions that you wouldn't want to tolerate. But most extremophiles are microscopic. They're you know microbes, uh, and you find them everywhere. I mean, it's well known. You can find them in you know nuclear reactors, and you can see them uh, find them in the the fuel tanks of jet airliners and so no. they're all over the place. And to be honest, those may be the best representatives of what life on other worlds is like, because the majority of it is going to be microscopic. And these extremophiles, you know, could live on some of these other worlds. Now, how would you uh, determine whether or not these things exist in places like some of the moons of Jupiter or maybe even on asteroids? What would be the signs of life of these organisms? Well, you probably wouldn't see much. I mean, you could turn, you know, train a telescope on these worlds, or you could just send a, you know, a, a probe and make photos from nearby. But and while you might see the environments where they might be, and we have done that, you wouldn't see the microbes themselves. So you have to get a sample fundamentally, and that actually, you know, we're, we, we've got 
equipment that's looking for life on Mars these days. The Perseverance rover is trying to scoop up dirt samples that might contain evidence for uh, previous life on Mars. But if you fly around a, a world like Enceladus, that's one of the moons of Saturn, it actually has geysers, ice geysers, or it spews ice into space. Uh, coming from its innards where there's some liquid water. And so maybe all you need to do is send a spacecraft out there, scoop up some of that stuff without ever landing anywhere, and then bring it back to Earth and then analyze it in a lab. And you might see microscopic life inside that, uh, that, that ice. Gee, I wonder if it's possible to, when we do send a probe out to one of these uh, bodies in our solar system, if uh, uh, there couldn't be some kind of a... Uh, analyzing uh, device or instruments on board the actual probe itself so we can examine it right there and then rather than wait until we bring it back to earth which might be many years later yeah good point and also you know somewhat fraught with difficulty bringing it back you might you know lose the whole thing just (laughs) (laughs) on earth (laughs) so that, that would be a bit of a bummer after spending all those years you know doing this project but uh, the, the the real difficulty is that, yes, you can put uh, some sort of analytic uh, equipment on the spacecraft to, as you say, analyze it in space. But you can do a much, much better job of it if you can get the sample back to Earth, because there you know, obviously are labs on Earth that you know are much more sophisticated than anything you could put into a spacecraft. Yeah. So that's why, you know, you see that with the Perseverance rover. Like, it, it's not analyzing anything terribly sophisticated in places just trying to find likely clods of dirt if you want <laughs> and those <laughs> the idea is to bring those things back so if we find martians uh thanks to all this effort we will find them in a lab on earth not on mars oh okay what about contamination that have to also make sure that that wouldn't happen yeah no that's right that's right that that's actually a big point uh you know that you that that the spacecraft itself, of course, is sterilized. In fact, the Perseverance rover was sterilized to a level that uh, actually exceeds, I think, any of the other probes we've sent to Mars. And But that is an issue. And uh, you don't want to discover earthly life on Mars. That would be yeah. a encouraging thing. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you've you got to take precautions. That would raise some interesting eyebrows to, to discover there was... The human organism existing on Mars. (laughs) But uh, in any case, uh, back to the Institute. Uh, What else does the Institute do? Uh, uh, I imagine most of the work was originally, as I understand it, uh, involving a radio telescope uh, receiving information. Yes. Well, well, not even. Yes, the information to the extent that well, there's somebody out there with a transmitter. Yeah, it's kind of the, the the nature of the experiment is that we look for signals coming from the sky uh, that are narrow band, which is to say, you know, you you know about this if you have a radio with a dial you can tune. You know, your your favorite station is at uh, I don't know, you know, 1,043 kilohertz or something like that. Whatever it is. Uh, you can tune up to that and you'll, you'll either get other stations or just noise and then suddenly your station comes in and it's at, you know, essentially one spot on the radio dial. That's the way radio transmitters work. Whereas 
the natural radio noise makers in space, like, you know, quasars and pulsars and all that stuff, uh, they're all over the dial. So the experiment's simple. You aim a big antenna at the sky. You've got a sophisticated receiver trying to monitor as much of the dial as you can, looking for signals that are not uh, all over the dial, but just at one spot. So uh, looking for that narrow bandwidth would be, uh, I guess, a signature of the possibility of some kind of artificial uh, signal coming from somewhere in space, huh? That's it. That's exactly it. I mean, you know, as far as we know, nature can't make a signal like that. So if you get one, you say, okay, I don't know, you know, uh, who's there or what they're saying, because that's another that's another, another technical consideration to actually get the message. But at least you know that you found a world which has not just life, but life that's clever enough to build a radio transmitter. Now, have we received anything like that so far? not that's uh, panned out no you get signals all the time that's because you keep picking up the the uh, the efforts of homo sapiens nah. you know, there are <laughs> yeah. plenty of satellites up there that are beaming information down uh, about the weather or about whatever right and you pick up those signals because it's such a sensitive system that SETI uses and you just gotta you know throw all that stuff away and say look i'm not interested in earth satellites or the radar sets down you know, by the coast or that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a big, uh, big problem of our own interference, but uh, we have no choice. Yeah, like that garage door nearby that might be closing or opening, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, they're probably not at the right frequency, but yes, exactly. Yeah, so, so in the meantime, though, uh, I, I came across information involving a, um, a signal that kind of surprised the uh, people who received it, uh, the uh, wow signal in 1977. Um, I guess you're familiar with that, aren't you? Yes, yes, that was found uh, at the Ohio State Radio Observatory with an antenna that has since been knocked down. Ah, uh, well, you know, the, it, the, that, that bit of land was more valuable apparently as a golf course. Oh, no. So, oh. so uh, that, that's, that's gone. But indeed, in 1977, uh, you know, they were just using the antenna at that point to just scan the whole sky all the time uh, in the hopes of picking up something. And one day, one of the astronomers walked in and looked at the computer printout, because back then you would print it out, and uh, he saw a signal. And it was so impressive and so much like what they would expect from E.T. that uh, he took out a magic marker and wrote WOW next to it. And uh, it's become famous largely, I think, because of the branding, because there were other signals being found in those days. But still, it is famous as a still unexplained signal, but it was never, ever seen again. Even a minute later, it wasn't seen again. So, uh, you know, you, you can't call it a detection if you don't, if you can't verify it. Oh, so repetition is important, I would imagine, in any kind of uh, enterprise in science, including looking for extraterrestrials. And so there was none, huh? No, no. That, that particular telescope had essentially two, two receivers on it. And so, you know, the first receiver picked up the signal. The second receiver would be looking at the same spot on the sky about a minute later. And uh, it did not find the signal. So, you know... Either the aliens were just a <laughs> short, I don't know, uh, <laughs> uh, public service announcement that ended before the second uh, antenna saw it or not. But, uh, you know, nobody knows what it was. The chances that it was E.T. are in, 
in my view, not very high, but it's still intriguing. Ah, we're talking to uh, Dr. Seth Shostak. Uh, he's an author and senior astronomer at the SETI Institute, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And that's what we're talking about, the search for possible intelligence and maybe even uh, any other kind of uh, organism that might be found uh, in our solar system or elsewhere. Um, Dr. Shostak, um, what then would be the criteria for determining whether or not a signal like that, a radio signal, is one that might be coming from an intelligent source other than the narrow bandwidth? Anything else uh, can be used as a criteria? Not at the moment. The, The systems that we use are looking for indeed a narrow bandwidth signal, and it has to be coming from uh, one spot on the sky. And the way you do that is, you know, you, you pick up a signal, let's say, and then you say, oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, and you move the telescope a little bit, so you're looking not at that particular star system, you're looking off to the side and see that the signal goes away. And then, you know, if you go back to the star system, it comes back and so forth and so on. So you locate it, and you also insist that it move across the sky at the rate that the stars do and you know that's just due to the rotation of the earth but anybody who pays attention to the stars knows that the constellations you know a month from now or six months from now that you can see at night are different than the ones you can see now and that's because the earth is going around the sun and it changes its uh, point of view so whatever you pick up has to do that too and uh, if it meets those criteria, then you'd say, okay, it's an aeroband source, and it's coming from something that's moving across the sky the same way the stars do. And at that point, uh, you know, you're probably, uh, you're probably a pretty happy camper. <laughs> so, so you really have to look at uh, various kinds of points of information in order to exclude the possibility that these signals uh, uh, are, uh, in fact, uh, Real signals will say, well, intelligent signals as opposed to artificial produced by various kinds of Earth devices, things of that nature. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, uh, I came across information, too, that uh, was it about two years ago in 2019, was it, where some signals were received from uh, where uh, uh, an area in, in uh, uh, or the area of the Centauri group of stars from from one that's uh, close to us, Proxima Centauri, that's our closest star, I guess, besides the sun. Uh, what about these signals? Has SETI become involved in this uh, data as well? Well, uh, it's not the SETI Institute's project. It's actually uh, a result that came out of the Breakthrough Listen project. Ah. And uh, as, as, <laughs> as circumstance would have it, that uh, that work is centered at the University of California, Berkeley, which is, you know, maybe 50 miles away from the SETI Institute. So we're, we're all very close to one another. But they indeed were using the telescope, the radio telescope down in the uh, sheep country west of Sydney, Australia. It's called the Parks Radio Telescope. It's a very yeah. pretty thing, actually. Huh. And, uh, and they, they indeed picked up a signal from the direction of Proxima Centauri, which, as you say, is the closest star other than the sun. So it's like 4.2 or 4.3 light years away. Uh, That's pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and the signal seems to be narrow band, but is it, you know, really ET on the line, or is it just more earthly interference? And I, I think that they're trying to follow up on that. I mean, obviously they are. 
Yeah, yeah. I suppose some of the astronomers believe that it might be a signature of some intelligent source. Well, yes. Of course, there are some that do think that, but one one has to look to history, I think, to maintain equilibrium. At any time, something unusual is found in the sky, right? Which is, after all, the job description for astronomers: find something, find something new. Don't don't find the same things we already know about. So when you know when quasars were found, and that's a long time ago. That's what, like sixty years ago. Yeah. Uh, the uh, you know there were reports from astronomers in the Soviet Union who thought it was in fact an alien signaling us. Turned out not to be. Uh, the pulsars uh, were interpreted the same way. We have a tabby star a couple of years ago. Today, there's an astronomer from Harvard, Avi Loeb, who thinks that uh, Oumuamua, which most astronomers think was an asteroid or comet, but you know he's suggesting it was something else, something artificially constructed. So Ooh. there is a tendency to always consider the, the, the possibility yeah, that what you're looking at is not nature. Yeah, it's always that uh, kind of question that arises in our minds, whether or not there's any other thing living out there besides ourselves. And we're always looking for something like that, I suppose. Yes, yes, we are. And, you know, the, the whole premise when people would ask me, as they occasionally do, well, why do you think there are any aliens out there anyhow? It's only because we know that there are like a trillion star systems in the middle. That's not right. About a trillion planets. I misspoke. Uh, there are a couple of hundred billion star systems, but on the order of a trillion planets just in the Milky Way. Yeah. And it and it's hard to think that only Earth has done anything interesting. Yeah, right. <laughs> and sometimes you wonder about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, interesting being a relative term, but yes. indeed. <laughs> Uh, uh, what about the uh, information that was received in terms of uh, signals, not in the form of radio wave, but in the form of light, uh, laser from different uh, parts of the universe? Any kind of uh, any kind of questioning about that, and uh, any research going into that area? Well, you know, most astronomy has been done in what's called the optical part of the electromagnetic spectrum, no. visible light. And uh, there are just very practical reasons for that. But in fact, it's possible that maybe the aliens, some of them, are signaling with light. They could be using big lasers, indeed, to beam information from one place to another. And so uh, that's that's a kind of regime, if you will, that hasn't been looked at very carefully in the past. We've been doing radio for a long time, but not optical searches. But that's changing. I was talking this morning to one of our uh, people at the SETI Institute is building some equipment that'll be deployed around the world and, and, and look for these kinds of short bursts of laser light that might be used for communication or just to, to wake us up, if you will, to say, look, this is an interesting uh, part of the universe. Uh, you know, let's get in touch, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so now we're looking also for signals that might be in the form of light, like laser from different uh, parts of the universe, <laughs> it, at least in our galaxy at any rate. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, if, if somebody's con- communicating from another galaxy, they, they, they probably have to have a very, well, a great deal of patience, put it that way, because the, the, communi- the communication time scales would be really long. Now, whatever signal it is, whether radio or light or any 
uh, other area of the spectrum of electromagnetism. And uh, uh, I suppose um, uh, besides the optical and uh, uh, the radio, uh, as a matter of fact, in the radio area, uh, what about those uh, fast radio bursts? Is that looked upon as being possible candidates for communication? Well, some people have suggested that fast radio bursts, which were discovered not very long ago, actually. Um, and, and, you know, these, these are very, very quick radio burps, if you will, you know, <laughs> yeah. like that. You know, they're, they're, they're the length of an eye blink, that's all. Right. And uh, for a long time, they were very puzzling because when you get something that's that short, it, it's very hard to study it because you don't know when it's going to happen, right? So they found, actually, in the early days of these fast radio bursts, they found a few uh, sources of the burst that repeated. Every couple of days would be another burp, ah. right? So that meant that they could, you know, you could deploy antennas or telescopes and whatever in that direction, just wait a couple of days. If you had to wait a couple of years, you wouldn't do it, but a couple of days you're willing to wait, and they were able to trace these things to galaxies Hmm. Uh, in some cases, billions of light years away. I mean, these things are very far. Wow. But nonetheless, uh, at least one astronomer, well, Avi Lobegin, uh has suggested, well, don't rule them out. I mean, maybe these are some sort of signaling uh, by aliens. The, the trouble I have with that is that, uh, you know, they're, they're coming from essentially all, all directions and from very far away. And it's kind of hard to understand how one society could get in touch with another society billions of light years from it and say, hey, make these radio bursts. I mean, doesn't, doesn't really, doesn't seem to work yeah. to me, but yeah. people yeah. who say it was. Now, what about these signals coming to us? Uh, no matter what uh, kind of signal in the form of electromagnetism, um, don't they get spread out in terms of their distance? Uh, the further they are, the more spread out they are, and the weaker the signal. So to receive something that was very strong in the way of a signal, you'd have to have it really powerful to be sent out initially, don't you? Yes, indeed you do. And that's one of the things about this uh, short radio burst. It's probably the biggest clue we have to what they really are. Because, as you say, everything uh, you know gets weaker with distance. I mean, you go out with a flashlight, and you know it can illuminate something close uh, you know, adequately to make it bright enough to make a photo or whatever. But, you know, if you shine it on a building a mile away, obviously you don't get too much of that light back. So it's, it, it's true that the, the fast radio bursts in particular, if they're coming from a galaxy that's three billion light years away, whatever it is that's making them must be extraordinarily powerful or it could be something that's, well, uh, you know, just beamed in your direction. I mean, you can always uh, beat the rap of distance by, you know, kind of focusing your light or radio, whatever it is. So, but it, it is true that the usual assumption is that it's being, you know, since this burp is being broadcast in all directions or most directions, and consequently, whatever's doing it is extremely powerful. And that's why the astronomers think that this is something like a uh, magnetic uh, a star with a strong magnetic field yeah yeah so something really natural not artificial necessarily yeah yeah i suppose it's um uh, more logical to to look at it in terms of uh trying to find out whether it's a natural source first of all and then maybe last resort maybe considering the 
possibility of it being a, an artificial kind of signal. I, I would imagine that's the case, huh? Well, that is the case because there's been so much history in which people thought, well, maybe this is ET. And in every instance of that, it's been shown that, well, ultimately it's actually, it's not ET. It's, it's some yeah, sort of natural yeah. phenomenon. But the way these things go is you make a discovery, you know, like like the pulsars. For yeah, yeah. And, and within a you know within a year or two the uh, the theoreticians come up with a mechanism they come up with an explanation that doesn't involve et it just involves you know nature doing its thing so that's happened essentially every time but um you know one of these times it might might not happen maybe it'll turn out really to be et yeah right right now in looking for signatures that would indicate the possibility of uh uh, an artificial signal, um, I would imagine that um, considering the frequency of the radio wave, or I imagine even light to a certain extent, the frequency maybe would be a tip-off as to whether or not it might fit into the category of something artificial. Does that make a difference looking for a specific frequency? I don't know that it does. It certainly uh, it makes sense to see how much of the radio spectrum is filled with the signal, right? Because as I say, if you build a transmitter, if you build, if you engineer something to make a strong radio source, then you usually, you know, want to keep the bandwidth limited because otherwise it just takes too much energy, right? There's, there's a reason that your top 40 AM station is limited to a small yeah. part of the radio dial because right. otherwise it just take all the same energy. And, and you don't need more bandwidth. So, yeah, those are all clues to what's going on. I mean, it's how it how it changes with time, you know, what frequency is it at, and all those sorts of things. All the things that you try to measure with any phenomenon are the clues to what it really is. Now, now what about when, when uh, you're working at uh, SETI? Uh, can you go through maybe a, a routine, if, if, if that's possible, a routine day at SETI, what would you do in terms of uh, working at SETI? Well, most people have the idea that we're sitting around, you know, putting on earphones and <laughs> listening to what's coming out of the radio telescopes. That's not true at all. Uh, all that is automated, of course. In fact, you don't even have to go to the site where the antennas are, which are usually in kind of remote areas to reduce interference. Uh, the antennas that we use most often are the those of the Allen Telescope Array, ah. named after Paul Allen, who funded uh, the construction of what we have so far. It's, you know, we, we we're hoping to build more antennas. But anyhow, there are 40, 42 antennas up in about 300 miles north of San Francisco. But you don't actually have to go up there anymore. You can just do it all remotely. Yes, there are some people that live at the observatory to fix things that go wrong. But the astronomer doesn't have to go there. And that's in general the case with astronomy these days. You don't actually go to the telescope. But uh, you know, uh, given that, so my daily life isn't to, <laughs> to go <laughs> the antenna. You know, you you might uh, suggest, okay, let's look at this object or that object, and you know that sort of thing. But uh, the rest of the day is uh, occupied with things that are, in some ways, rather mundane. You know, dealing with com uh, uh, correspondence or you know trying to fundraise because it's all privately funded. Uh, these sorts of things. So you know, no two days are the same. I notice also, too, that uh, in terms of what you do, you're all over the place in terms of YouTube, uh, in terms of different kinds of panel discussions. 
uh, and things of that sort that are recorded in different kind or on different kind of venues. Well, yeah, that's true. That <laughs> that, that used to impress my mother, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> it, well, I you know I have a as it turns out a long history and interest in the media, and uh, so I'm I am indeed frequently interviewed. But uh, I also do a lot of writing. I write for NBC these days, and you know, so I, I'm am keen on what's called outreach, which is to say, to bring science to the public in a way that they find interesting, entertaining, and informative. We have a little radio show, all this sort of stuff. So yeah, that's that's something else that uh, occupies my time. Wow, you're pretty occupied in that case. What's your radio show? Big Picture Science. Big picture science. Oh, okay. Yeah. I have to check in on that one. Yeah, it's both a radio show and a podcast, so people can download uh, episodes on the web, just like any podcast. Uh, or, you know, if you happen to be in a city where we're broadcast, you can hear that too. Wow, fantastic! And, and what about the book? You, you said you've written some books, huh? I have. the The last book I, <laughs> uh, the last book that I've written that isn't a an update is uh, Confessions of an Alien Hunter. Oh. It's about 10 years old. Well, wow, i got to listen to these confessions. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Somebody told me there were not enough confessions in there, but I think that person was <laughs> Catholic and you know, uh, used to more confessions. You were holding back on those, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. We, uh, we've been interviewing uh, Dr. Seth Shostak. He is author and uh, senior astronomer at the SETI Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute. And we'll be talking about the search for extraterrestrials. Well, thank you for being on Carl's Orbit, Dr. Shostak. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure, Carl. I've enjoyed talking with you. And thank you all for listening in and uh, hoping you join us again in Carl's Orbit.